0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org.
1: So, I have the wonderful pleasure of reading the scripture this morning. So, if you have turned with me to Psalms 119, verses 113 to 128, or access it on your app, or it should be here on the screen. Let's read. I hate those who are double minded, but I love your instruction. You are my shelter and my shield. I put my hope in your word. Depart from me, you evil ones, so that I may obey God's commands. Sustain me as you promised and I will live. Do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Sustain me so that I can be safe and always be concerned about your statutes. You reject all who stray from your statutes for their deceit is a lie. You remove all the wicked on earth as if they were dross from metal. Therefore, I love your decrees. I tremble in awe of you. I fear your judgments. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Guarantee your servant's well-being. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes grow weary looking for your salvation and for your righteous promise. Deal with your servant based on your faithful love. Teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding so that I may know your decrees. It is time for the Lord to act, for they have violated your instruction. Since I love your commands more than gold, even the purest gold, I carefully follow all your precepts and hate every false way.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Jamal, for reading for us we are in this uh, summer series where we are taking different parts of Psalm 119 to gain a deeper appreciation for God's Word in our own lives, and I'll be continuing that this morning, but I do um, want to say thank you. It is special to have that uh, milestone of 10 years pastoring the best congregation in the world, you guys. Give yourselves a hand. Um, but seriously, I do just feel full of, of, of deep uh, gratitude and joy that uh, God has been faithful to allow me to uh, lead and serve alongside um, such a loving and gracious community. And the fact that I'm invited to preach once in a while after all this time is just a testament to that grace. Uh, you still come and listen to me. Um, and so, yes, thank you. Um, the gate has been a gift. Uh, to me, and to, to my family. Um, I, we started attending the gate before I was on staff, so around 2009. Uh, Crystal and I both started coming here, and uh, we weren't even married at the time, we were university students. And so as I reflected on our time here, and was praying, I, I wanted to um, do a little throwback, if you will come with me. Back in time, it's, it feels like forever ago. All I can say is time flies. Doesn't it? Especially once you're an adult. Ten years, I think at the start of ten years that felt insurmountable. Now it's like, well, I don't know what happened, but it was quick. Um, (laughs) So anyways, as I said, I was a a student back in 2009 at uh, University of Lethbridge. And um, I I learned uh, many things, one of which was uh, how to connect the dots. You know those dot-to-dot things? Uh, where you connect the dots. It was an arts degree. I didn't literally do dot to dots in class. I played Angry Birds. A little tip for any university students out there. Um, Things to do to pass the time, I suppose. But no, I I did learn to connect uh, the dots as a way of um, getting a bigger picture of what I was supposed to learn. So a professor would hand us a, a text, whether it was a poem or something else, and it would be the most confusing thing I'd ever laid eyes on, right? Most good poems are incredibly confusing. However, a good professor would make points of meaning for us and connect them together to show us the bigger picture of what we were supposed to learn. And without that, we would all be more or less hooped, but with some help, we could learn. And, And that's a way of reading that I gained as I went through uh, my degree. And this is all well and good to do with a poem or a book or what have you. But when we take this kind of dot-to-dot thinking to God's Word, it's like looking up at night. And, you know, we're not seeing a dot-to-dot on a page. We're seeing the night sky, right? And it's deep, and it's endless, and it's illuminated, and it's wonderful, and we can make constellations out of what we see. In fact, I was able to do this with my kids as they were up much too late last night. We were outside at a movie, and they were looking at constellations with me. So, um, there's a word for this, dot-to-dot meaning-making. Uh, it is a French word, but fear not, for we are Canadian. Um, <laughs> and you can say it with me if you want, it won't hurt a bit. The word for this is motif. Motif. You've probably heard this before. Motif literally means uh, pattern. That's why uh, in art or textiles, they'll talk about motifs in home decor or whatever. But in literature, a motif is simply a repeating pattern of meaning repeating pattern of meeting, and that as we look for motifs and read we gain that more vivid big picture understanding of the text that we have. So this is what I want to talk a little bit about this morning, and this is not some kind of mental or spiritual trick that's going to unlock the secrets of the Bible for you. Many badly written books have been sold promising just that. Don't buy or read those books, because it's not a secret, right? It's not something of of some type of enlightenment. It's just a tool that we can use. And similarly, for those who are... um, use this tool of identifying meaning and picking up on motifs in Scripture, we should not think of ourselves as any different or better than anybody else as we read. But rather, we do this because we have this God-given hunger within us for knowledge, for understanding, to know more of the things of God. After all, we have been given the blessing of Scripture to seek God and to find Him and to know Him more and more. So this is a way that we can use it, and it's wonderful. Um, Jeremiah 3 speaks to what I've just been saying. It says, this is what the Lord says... The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's Declaration. So in this passage, we have a warning against pride of being puffed up in our knowledge, but the promise yet to know God as we pursue Him. So let us be eager and hungry for that knowledge of Scripture, not to boast in the knowledge, but to boast in the Lord and His faithfulness. Amen. Motifs. So, how do we spot a motif in the text? Just really quick, there's two main ways that I'll give to us that as we read will be able to identify these patterns. And I will say that both of these approaches are completely assisted by the Holy Spirit, who is at work in us as we pray and read and seek the Lord. So the first one, get ready to have your minds blown. The first way for us to spot motifs in Scripture is to read it. I told you it wasn't a secret. <laughs> In fact, if you've been with us any Sunday uh, this, this summer, you've heard us say this over and over, read your Bibles. That is what this series is about, is the reading of the Word, to read it on your own. I say this by comparison. Um, when I go to the dentist, the dentist asks me if I floss, and I tell them, I'm a recreational flosser, which they love because that means no, except for like before my appointment. Um, I hardly ever floss, and they know that. Um, In the same way, if we are recreational students of the Bible, as in we never read it for ourselves, we're not going to be able to pick up on these motifs within the Bible because we're just not in it. We're not in it nearly often enough to retain enough within it to be able to make those points of connection. So the first, most basic, and very, very important uh, way for us to understand God's Word is to read it regularly, often. You know, if you read the Bible uh, every, every year or throughout the year, which some people do, Take some reading and you can do it in a year. If you did that every year for your entire life, I can guarantee that each time you read it through, you're going to be learning something new, uh, discovering new things, or rediscovering things that you completely forgotten as you read. So we read the word, we read it often and carefully. But the next way to learn about God's Word, to pick up on themes and motifs is with the help of some type of guide, right? This is like when I was in class and I had those professors who knew what they were talking about and were able to highlight the important things for me to understand what I needed to know, right? Because when we come to something that we misunderstand or that's frustrating or difficult, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's something wrong with the text, but rather, or more likely, that there's something wrong with our approach to the text, right, our understanding of it, and so we wrestle with it And more often than not, we need someone to take us and show us what's there. Education is not something you do on your own in a vacuum. And neither should be Bible study, ideally, something we do together. Again, not to say that there's no value in reading on your own. In fact, that's the first and most important step. But the second one is to have a guide to show us what's at hand. As I thought about these two most basic ways of understanding and appreciating what's in God's word, I gave thanks because there's actually a perfect example of what I'm describing uh, in Acts chapter 8. Listen to what it says. It says, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on the way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. Now the spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. So when Philip ran up, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading How can I, he said, unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe this generation, for his life is taken from the earth. Now the eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? And Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with the scripture. So here you have both things at hand. There's the man engaged in this, the text, the prophet Isaiah. He had to pass the time in the chariot somehow, so he's taken a read. And uh, then you have the Holy Spirit who's, who's telling Philip, go, go over and find this chariot. And I love how uh, Philip obeys... And he hears it and, and has the boldness to go up and say, what you reading? <laughs> and then uh, the man tells him and he's like, do you understand it? <laughs> and I'm sure possibly with frustration or sarcasm, he's like, well, no, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? And there you have it. God set it right up for Philip to be the guide for this man who was seeking God in faith in the word to lead him to Jesus, because Philip had that ability. He knew the, the prophets from the Old Testament, and he also knew Jesus, and he could connect those dots for this man with a profound effect in his life. So I love this story as a good example. We are going to go through some examples of biblical motifs, though, because I understand that it's somewhat of a, maybe a confusing, like I said, it's kind of a catch-all phrase for themes and 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 so on. So we can find one very common and incredibly important motif in the uh, passage that, that I just read, and that is uh, that of the slaughtered lamb, which was from the, the prophet Isaiah, the slaughtered lamb. So if you've uh, been to church before, read your Bible before, or know a little bit about uh, like ancient history, you know that the, the slaughtered lamb is symbolic. It's very important, and it means a lot of things, right? that The lamb represents uh, purity, Um, um, helplessness of sorts, right? It's a baby sheep. Um, Obviously, the sacrifice and and the atonement for sins and, and so on. It means a lot more than that, too. But it's a crucial motif in the Bible. And so Philip, as I said, is aware of this. And he can pick up on what it means. It's not just about an actual lamb. It's a symbol for the lamb. Who is Jesus, right? And so there's this beautiful connection that happens, a constellation, if you will, that uh, when he describes it to this official, it leads him to faith in Christ. So that's an example of a motif, lambs in the Bible. Um, another one, I wanted to talk about this one because it's very uncommon, and it says a little bit weird when I was reading. Um, There's the motif of um, meeting one's future spouse at a well. Uh, Married people? Anybody? Meet your spouse at the well? Um, It's not as weird as it sounds. Maybe you met your spouse at the coffee shop or something. This is a little bit like that in ancient times, right? Um, (laughs) It happens where a male traveler arrives at a well meets a woman, the man asks her for a drink, they exchange numbers, I mean information, (laughs) right? Some kind of information about the travels or whatever the man's doing. Then the woman goes home and shares that information with her family, and then that family receives the man, and the two are engaged, and then later get married. Does this sound familiar? There's actually three instances of it. Abraham's servant and Rebekah in Genesis 24. There's Jacob and Rachel in Genesis 29. And then also Moses and Zipporah in Exodus 2. Okay, so this is a repeating pattern, and it's kind of interesting. But what's super interesting, and where my imagination went, was, well, wait a minute. If I'm trying to make a connection between the Old Testament and the New, I know that Jesus met a woman at a well also, didn't he? In John chapter 4, Jesus meets not his future spouse, but a Samaritan woman who has been married five times and is living with a sixth man um, who she's not currently married to. Right? Some of us know this story. So they talk. Jesus tells her information about herself prophetically and other things which amaze her. And then she runs off and shares that information with her friends and family. And in the end, uh, leads her community to trust in Jesus or summon her community, right? She shares the good news about this man named Jesus. And they put their, put their faith in him. So now I hope that you're seeing how we can know God's word in a way which draws these connections. Uh, so as we read, we're not simply zoned in on the one thing that we're reading, but we have a zoomed out picture as well. And by doing this, by connecting these dots, in this story in particular, we can see how God created relationships. He created man and woman to be together, and he wants to draw them into relationships, but sin has obviously had its effect. And in this woman's life, very severely, she's she's had five marriages, which... Did not work out, but in Jesus, she receives freedom and liberty and forgiveness and grace and all the things which answer the problem of sin. In fact, in the passage, John four thirteen and 14, Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. So the importance of the well is not just that people go there to drink and exchange information and sometimes get married, but it's symbolic for the eternal life that Jesus offers to those who will receive it. Really quickly, we can return to our passage, Psalm 119. There's a lot of motifs that come up in the Psalms and repeat. So if we uh, just read verse 114 again, we hear the psalmist say this, You are my shelter and my shield. I put my hope in your word. So taking this passage, we notice the feeling that the speaker has. He's, He's anxious. He feels vulnerable or frail. Anybody felt this way before? This is a normal feeling. But what the psalmist does is profound. He turns to God and says, You're my refuge. So the psalmist compares God to a shelter or a shield. And this would be a motif, a a symbol that we hear many times, especially in the psalms, of God being a shelter. Or a shield, Psalm 28.7 says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, for I am helped. Therefore, my heart celebrates. I give thanks to him with my song. So as we consider this repeating pattern of God as a shield, what does it mean to us? Well, God is our shield when we feel vulnerable. And we can place our hope in him. He is worthy of our trust, he is unchanging, he will cover us, he protects us, all these things. But what's even more miraculous with this motif in scripture is the way that God saved us was by becoming vulnerable himself, right? You see, when Jesus came to earth, he came as a, first of all, a human, but a baby human, a poor baby human the most vulnerable thing we can imagine. And then at the cross when he saved us, he became vulnerable to all the sin that Satan could possibly throw at him when he died. And that's the way that he saved us from all of our vulnerability. But this is the God that we love and worship. He loved us by laying himself down for us. So he truly is our shield this is how he is our shield and our refuge and our hope. We thank him for this. So I hope we're beginning to see that it isn't difficult for us to appreciate more and more about who God is when we do a careful reading of Scripture and pay attention to what is in there. Right? We're, we're blessed, if you attend church, to have weekly preaching and teaching from someone like Pastor Greg who cares to do this kind of study himself, right, in preparing a sermon to stay faithful to God's message and what's in it in the scriptures. And on top of that, there are lots of uh, wonderful scholars who we as pastors look up to and, and pay attention to and read as well. But they're not just for ministers, but for any Christian to learn from in order to have this deeper understanding, and growth and appreciation of the Word. What comes to mind for me as probably the most accessible and popular uh, contemporary resource is one that's called The Bible Project. Many of us have have heard of this before. It's by uh, Tim Mackey and John Collins, and, and we've shared about it before on Sunday mornings. But The Bible Project, if you look this up, it's just a wonderful, actually visual way of seeing these connections happen and the big picture of the story of God's Word and what's in it. Because I've, as I said, it's, it really helps to have a knowledgeable guide to lead us through these points of meaning in the text, to not feel alone in what we read and not be frustrated in what we don't understand because there are people who are frankly a lot smarter than us who can help us, guide, guide us through what we can learn. But trust me, again, even without another person to be our guide, I want to emphasize the role of the Spirit who is alive in us, who teaches us these things as we go. I mean, just by going through the gospel texts, if you read them, you have Jesus there, and he's actually explaining important motifs to us. He does this over and over It was what he was doing with the woman at the well. So for a final example, I wanted to turn to one of uh, the places where Jesus does this, where he connects the dots and he teaches us. It's a long, bit of a long passage from John chapter 6, but again, I wanted to read a longer passage, because this is often the way that we can sort of see the thread going through. So John 6, uh, 32 to 56, listen as I read. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. And then, just jumping ahead a little bit to verse 41. Therefore, the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes from me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So that anyone may eat of it and not die, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews started arguing amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Now, The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. So here you see Jesus going to the Old Testament. He's describing the miracle where God gave his people food in the wilderness to sustain them, right? It fell from heaven. This was manna. But, as Jesus points out, unfortunately, even this incredible gift resulted in uh, physical death for the Israelites, right? They died. They ate it, but they died, But Jesus points back to Moses and the prophets to say that they're all from God the Father in order to bring us to belief in him for eternal life. Not just to sustain us with our daily bread that we eat, but for us to receive and live forever in him. This is why he says that his body and blood would be the food and drink from heaven. You see, he was going to lay himself down to be the gift to save humanity from death. And as he said, it it is for all of those who believe in him. And so Jesus offers us himself and he offered his disciples the meal of communion before he went to the cross.